0: So Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah chapter 6. It reads, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him, above him stood the seraphim, Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who cried out, And the house was filled with smoke, and I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal, That he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that you would just speak to our hearts in the next few moments that we have. Lord, that you would again open our eyes to see what it is you want us to see, open up our ears to hear what your Holy Spirit is saying. To each one of us today, we want to hear from you. We we, we want to live the the life you've called us to live. And so through our time in your word, help us to live as your people. Lord, to not live like the the culture or the world uh, that we are living in. But Lord, that we would be the salt and the light that you have called us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, this passage begins with Isaiah, the prophet. Isaiah was a prophet called by God and sent by God to proclaim a message to his people, the the Israelite people, his chosen people. This, of course, is is about 750 years uh, before Christ. And so this is, again, in the the Old Testament, the the era of the kings. Uh, God had called his people and he had called a man Abraham and brought him out of the nations and he had made a promise to Abraham that through him and his offspring, the nations of the world would be blessed. That offspring, of course, we know is Jesus Christ. And through Christ today, God is blessing the nations of the earth. And as to, to bring that Messiah into, uh, in, into the world, God established his, his people, uh, the, the children of Israel. And so the descendants of Abraham were Isaac and Jacob. God changed Jacob's name to Israel. Israel was in captivity in Egypt, and God delivered them from Egypt and established them in this land of promise. And in this time of, of promise, as, as God was preparing to bring his Messiah into the world, uh, he had kings that, that ruled and reigned over his people in that time. And it says that one of the kings... ...was named Uzziah. It starts this passage in the year that King Uzziah died. Isaiah had this vision. Now, the kingdom of Israel had split. And I I think Pastor Mark talked about that a little bit last week... ...when when he talked about the the woman at the well... ...and how she was a Samaritan woman. That the kingdom of Israel had split... uh, ...had a a civil war. They had split into two nations. Into two kingdoms. One was called Israel... And the Samaritans were were part of that. Their their capital city was Samaria. The other nation was called Judah. And Jerusalem was was the capital city of of Judah. The the nation of Israel had 19 kings in the time that the kingdom was, was going. 19 kings. And all of them were evil and wicked kings. All of them led God's people into idolatry into child sacrifice, just as far away from God as possible. 19 kings, all of them were evil, until God finally brought judgment on the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 as the Assyrian army came and destroyed and took the nation of Israel captive. Now, the nation of Judah had 20 kings, and they did a little bit better than... Israel, as far as good kings and bad kings, righteous kings and wicked kings, Judah had 20 kings, and six of their kings were righteous kings. Six of their 20 served the Lord. However, 14 of them were wicked and evil, and God eventually brought judgment upon uh, Judah as well as the Babylon- Babylonian army conquered Jerusalem, destroyed the temple in 587. BC. Now, here he tells us about King Uzziah. King Uzziah was the 10th king of Judah. So he's in the southern kingdom. He's He's a part of the kings that had some righteous kings that served the Lord. And Uzziah was one of the six righteous kings. And he became king at age 16. Can you imagine that? 16 year old ruling a kingdom. He was put on the throne when his father died at the age of 16. And Uzziah reigned for 52 years. He was the the longest king of Judah and Israel. For 52 years he reigned as king. And he was a godly king. He was a great reformer. He he led a reformation. He led a national revival of of destroying the, the idols and destroying the altars that that, God, that they had erected to Baal and this false worship. And for 52 years, he led this, this season of spiritual renewal for the nation of Judah. And it was a great time of God's blessing as, 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 as the nation served the Lord. It says that God poured out his blessing upon the nation. He made them prosper. So it was a great season of national prosperity, of national wealth. They even reclaimed uh, territories that had been lost and and reclaimed land that that used to belong to them but had been lost. And they went and they reclaimed it. And so for 52 years, the nation is prospering. For 52 years, they're they're in the profit. The, The stock market is going up. Everything is going well for 52 years as the nation sought the Lord. But then towards the end of his life, King Uzziah the Bible tells us, was filled with pride. He became proud. He he looked at everything that had happened under his reign, and he attributed the blessing not to God but to himself. And he decided that he would go, the king, and that he would go into the Holy of Holies to worship God. Now, this was something only the priest could do, But King Uzziah decided that he could enter into worship on his own merits, on his own goodness and his righteousness, on his own own resume. They tried to stop him from doing it, and he, he wouldn't listen. The priest tried to say, don't do this, but his heart was filled with pride. And as he entered into the temple, God struck him with leprosy, a skin disease, immediately appeared upon him. And he had to rush out of the presence of God and he had to live for the rest of his life in isolation. And so what's happening here in the nation of Judah is it was a great season of prosperity. God had blessed them. They had a good king. But at the end of his life he became prideful and he was judged by God. And, And now he has died as all natural men do. He has died. And the question is, what will the future hold for the nation? Will the the next king be a godly king, or will the next king be ungodly, unrighteous? Will, Will he continue the reforms of Uzziah, or will he follow in the pride that Uzziah set forth, the trajectory he set forth at the end of his life? And will he lead the nation again into the judgment of God? And so the, the future of, of the nation is, is at stake. There, there's a lot of questions about the direction that the nation will go. The throne in Jerusalem is empty. And here it tells us that Isaiah, who was a prophet, that he went into the temple in this year that Uzziah had died. And when he went into the temple to seek the Lord, to worship the Lord, no doubt these burdens are are on him, on his mind? What will the future hold? Will, will we continue in prosperity? Will we continue under God's blessing? Or will we head into rebellion against God and suffer the judgment of God? Isaiah, very concerned about this, enters into the temple. And like many of us, I think that the question is there. You know, What, what direction will our nation take? What direction will our nation go? We've we've seen the history of our nation, the heritage of our nation, our nation that was founded by Bible-believing Christians who called on God Almighty, who established our laws, our Constitution, on the Word of God. That's the history and the heritage of our nation and have endured incredible prosperity. The, the, the nation of America, United States, has lived under the most prosperity of any nation ever in the history of the world. But over the last season of time, our, our, our leaders truly haven't sought the Lord. And in fact, our laws have continually been, been changed away from God's law, away from God's word. And as that has happened, as, as God has been pushed to the side, as as our nation is now in rebellion against God, removing God from schools, re- removing prayer from schools, you, you can't pray to God in school anymore. You, you can't talk about the Creator in, in school anymore. But if you want to bring... a uh, 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 transvestite in to to do a a drag queen show for kids, that's okay. You can indoctrinate kids in, in, in a demonic worldview, that's acceptable. But to pray to the true and living God, no, we don't want that in our schools. We don't want that in our society. And so I think many of us see what's going on in our nation. I believe that ...that the problems that we're having... ...they're not just natural problems. I believe that we are a nation... ...and not just our nation... ...but even the world right now... ...is under the judgment of God. And so the question is... ...what direction will we go? And so you may have come in here... ...like Isaiah, burdened today. Burdened about the future. What will the future hold? And as Isaiah comes into the temple... The throne has been vacated. He comes in in this year that King Uzziah died and it says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. Isaiah comes in and and though the throne in Jerusalem had been emptied and though that, that Uzziah's son had been placed on the throne and And though it is a question about whether he will, which direction Uzziah's son will will lead the nation, though the throne in Israel had been vacated, Uzziah saw something more important. Uzziah saw that the throne in heaven was occupied, that the throne in heaven had the King of kings and the Lord of lords seated firmly upon that throne, That, that though the direction of the nation might be in turmoil, the, the direction of, of history and the direction of, of the future and, and the direction of all the universe, that is not up for grabs. That, that, that is not teetering because God is seated on the throne and he is fixed there and no one can remove him from that place. And so you, uh, Isaiah came in burdened but he, he saw the king of glory seated on the throne. He saw the king of history seated on the throne. And it says that, that the, the, the train of his, his, his garment, that, that his train filled the temple. What this means is, is in, in, in that day when a king would go out to battle, he would go out in all of his glorious vestments, you know, all of his pomp, all of his, his uh, robe, uh, royal array, And when two kings would go to battle, when one king would defeat the other, he would take the robe, he would take that king's train, his robe, and he would attach it to the back of his robe if he won. He would take his crown, and of course he would sever that king's head, and then he would take his crown and and add it to his crown. And it says that our king, the king of kings, the, the lord of glory that his train is so long because he he is undefeated. He has has never suffered a victory that that his train fills the whole temple. It it is so big. It is so large. He's so victorious. The conquering king never once lost, never once suffered defeat. I mentioned earlier this morning as we were going through Psalm 24 That our king is so victorious that even when it looks like he has lost, he still wins. That even though the cross looked like a defeat, even though the disciples were hiding, worried that they were going to be next, the cross wasn't the defeat. It was through the cross that God won the greatest victory. So that even what looks like defeat is swallowed up in victory. So Paul writes, death where is your sting. Because death, even death has been swallowed up in victory. And so God's people, you and I, listen, we serve the king that is undefeated. We should have about us a holy boldness, a a, a confidence, not in the stock market, not in, in the future of our economic outcome. It could be good, it could be bad but in the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. The undefeated king, his his train fills the temple. The train of his robe fills the temple. He is high and lifted up. He goes on to say that above him, stood seraphim the seraphim are flaming angels, angels that are on fire. If you can picture that, it says that each of these seraphim had six wings. With two of the wings, they covered their face. They, they, can't, even, they can't even bring themselves to behold the one seated on the throne. Two, they covered their feet. and with two they flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. You know, we sang that song this morning, Holy, holy, holy. This is God's defining characteristic. When you think of God, you should think holy, holy, holy. The seraphim are not gathered around. They're not flying around singing, God is love, though God is love. They're not gathered around singing, God is good, though God is good. There there is a characteristic of God that, that towers above love, that towers above goodness. Night and day, it tells us in Revelation, night and day there's 24 elders surrounding the throne and and when they see the Lord, they, they bow down and they cast their crowns at His feet and they cry the same thing, holy, holy, holy. The word love is used in the Bible about 300 times, but holy and holiness is used in the Bible 650 times. Holy is the premier and supreme characteristic of God. If you want to understand anything about God, you have to understand that God is holy. If you want to understand God's love, you have to understand that God's love is holy love. If you want to understand God's goodness, you have to understand that His goodness is holy goodness. You have to understand His holiness, which is a problem for us because We, as fallen, sinful human beings, we cannot truly comprehend holiness. We're more likely to hear the word "holy" in front of a four-letter word than any place else, other in in any other place in our culture. In our culture, our culture is so fallen that it attributes God's supreme characteristic to one of the worst things in the universe. We attach what should bring us to our face before God and ascribe it to refuse. And it's done every single day. If you need any evidence just how far our culture has fallen, We don't call God holy, we call this four-letter word holy. The defining characteristic of God. So what is holiness? Again, it is the most difficult of God's attributes to describe because you cannot describe it by pointing to anyone or anything else. I can't point to you and say, well, God is holy like this, and God is holy like that, because only God is holy. So it is the most difficult to describe to to sinful humanity. Holiness truly is a foreign concept. When we think about holiness, we typically think of of concepts like purity or moral perfection. But, But these really, purity, moral perfection, these are secondary qualities of the word holiness. When the angels are worshiping God in heaven, they're saying something more than purity, Purity, purity. The primary meaning of holiness, if you look at the, the root word, it literally means to cut, to separate, to draw a line of distri- distinction. To, to be holy is to be other, to be completely other, to be completely separate. We use the, the terminology in, in our culture, a cut above. Something that is is supreme. Holiness, though, is not just separateness. God is not just separate, but He's transcendent. He's high and exalted. Isaiah saw the king high and exalted. It's not that God is just separate from us. He's high and exalted above all creation. So far above and beyond us. Holiness is God's supreme and absolute and total greatness. Holiness is God's all consuming majesty. Holiness is God's transcendent and exalted loftiness. God is infinitely above all creation not just a little bit not just marginally as far as you can imagine and then beyond high and exalted beyond comparison beyond comprehension god is holy the word holy calls to attention all that god is every aspect of god is this way His holiness, his justice, his love, his wisdom are all holy. God's holiness is so blindingly glorious that God told Moses, one of the most godly men who's ever lived, God told Moses, if you behold my face, you will die. That's how consuming God's holiness is. This is why those seraphim that no doubt are righteous and godly who are a flame of fire are covering their face daring not even to behold him who is seated on the throne and all they can mutter as they surround the throne and 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 fill the, the 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 throne room of god all they can can get out is holy 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 is the lord god almighty The whole earth is filled with his glory. They they use this this exclamation point, if you will, this multiplication of of taking God's holiness to the highest degree by not just saying that he's holy, not just saying that he's holy, holy, but multiplying it to the third degree that God is holy, holy, holy. Holy. There's no other attribute of God that is elevated to this level in all of Scripture, yet God's holiness is elevated to this level multiple times in Scripture. God, our God, the one true and living God, is the thrice holy God. He's not just holy. He's not just holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. To the highest degree and the highest order, God is exalted above all his creation. It says when the, the seraphim cried out this cry of praise that the, the foundations of the temple shook. And the house, the, 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 the temple was filled with smoke. And then we see the response. We see to, the response of Isaiah When he beheld God in His glory, when he beheld God on His throne, when he heard the cry of the seraphim, holy, 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 what does Isaiah say? Hey God, what's up? How you doing today, God? That's my homeboy on the throne. He doesn't say like the T-shirt that I've seen around a few times that really drives me nuts. God is dope. It doesn't say, hey God, you're dope, you know. No. What does Isaiah say? He says, Woe is me. Woe is me. I am undone. I am coming apart at the seams, to behold the Holy One on his throne. When Isaiah compares himself a lost sinner, to the holy God, he says, woe is me. This is the response we actually see through all of Scripture when mortal men encounter the holiness of God, the transcendence of God, the splendor of God. They are undone. In the Gospels, we see that uh, Jesus had instructed his disciples on how to fish, even though they were fishermen. And even though they were fishermen, professional, they couldn't catch any fish. And so Jesus, after they had fished all night, tells them, cast your net on the other side of the boat. I don't know if any of you have been fishing before, but it doesn't really seem like it would make much of a difference from one side of the boat to the other. It's It's kind of the same area. And if you've been fishing all night and haven't caught anything... ...moving from one side of the boat to the other... ...is it really going to do anything? Nevertheless, they say, okay, Jesus, at your word, he will do it. And when they did, their nets were filled to the point that they were bursting... ...and their ships were sinking. And Peter, when he gets to the shore... He falls down at Jesus' feet and he says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. When confronted with God's majesty, with God's power, with God's splendor, with the holiness of Jesus, Peter doesn't say, Hey, you need a business partner, Jesus? I've got an idea. We ought to go into the fishing business together. This will be great. You're our gravy train. No, he gets on his knees and he says, go away from me. I cannot stand to be in your presence. Because to be in the the presence of the holy God is an uncomfortable experience. When Jesus calmed the storm in the Gospels, it says the disciples were filled with great fear. That's an in- interesting statement because before he calmed the storms, they were terrified. They thought they were going to die. They're crying out to Jesus, do something, help us, quit taking your nap. We're drowning. We're going to die. And Jesus speaks to the storm. He says, peace be still. And the storm stops and listens and obeys him. And then they were really afraid. Who, who is this? who even the wind and the waves obey him. Filled with great fear. In Revelation chapter 1, as the apostle John encounters the risen Christ and sees him in all of his full glory, in verse 17 it says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, for I am the first. In the last, sinful man cannot exist in the presence of holy God. Even those who are redeemed, even those who have had their their sins washed clean, when they see God, when they have this experience of, of who God is, it is this undoing experience. What are we to do? What are we to do? God is holy, and we are not holy. God is holy, and we are sinful. And sin is an affront to the thrice holy God. Sin is an affront to the God who is holy, holy, holy. We have all sinned. We have all rebelled against God. We have all through our sin declared war on God. We've all broken God's good and righteous and perfect law. We live in active rebellion against God, declaring war on God's very nature and character And the Bible tells us that this sin, this breaking of God's law, this rebellion against him, it tells us that God does not tolerate this, that God cannot stand this. In fact, the Bible says that God hates sin. In the most uncompromising and clear terms, it tells us that God has righteous anger against sin that God will not, and in fact, because he is holy, he cannot overlook sin, overlook rebellion against him, overlook the breaking of his law. God cannot just look the other way and sweep sin under the rug. For God to do that would make him unjust. God is holy. He is just. He is perfect justice we can begin to understand some of God's righteous anger against sin as we think of the most sinful and depraved acts that we know of. As we think of those who abuse children, who prey on children, aren't we revolted by that? Don't, don't we too have a, a righteous anger against that? We're made in the image of God. We, we share that, that desire for justice with God. So we can begin to understand God's feelings towards sin and sinners as we think about the murderer and the rapist and the child abuser. Yet God's wrath is not only reserved to the categories of what we would call big sins. God's Judgment against sin, God's justice against sin, it burns against all sin. Even ones we would try to just say, well, that's just a small sin. That's just a a little sin. Is that even a sin? I mean, I know it it used to be 2,000 years ago, but we've evolved. We understand things today that are, are different. Even little things that we would say, oh, it's just a little lying. Oh, it's just a little cheating. Oh, it's just a little bending of the truth. Oh, it's just a little sexual sin. God wants me to be happy. No, dear friends, God wants you to be holy. We put these quote-unquote little sins into categories that we think is no big deal, but trust me, God... Sees it for what it truly is rebellion against Him. Again, this is difficult for us to comprehend. And in fact, if we're honest with ourselves, this feels unjust to us. That God would judge us for little sins seems unjust, seems unfair. But again, that feeling, you know where it comes from? A sinful heart. That feeling only only should undergird the depths to which we have fallen. It just affirms, that feeling just affirms how compromised we truly are and how holy God truly is. The Bible says because of sin that we are all alienated from God, that our sin separates us from a holy God. We're separated from the life of God, God the author and giver of life. The wages of sin is death. Because of sin, all will die. And that God is the righteous judge who will judge sin. And so because of sin, humanity today is lost, blind, dead, damned, and doomed to the eternal conscious torments of hell. That Jesus said the fire is never quenched and the worm never dies. Jesus, of course, is portrayed as love personified and he is love personified. But do you know who taught and talked the most about hell in all the Bible? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the most loving And Jesus does know what hell is. And so the most loving one who knows the most about hell is the one who warned us the most about what it would be like. The Bible says that we are dead in our sin. We can do nothing in and of ourselves to improve our condition before God. Without God working in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, we are totally unable and unwilling to turn to God. Without the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we are helpless and we are hopeless. And this is why Isaiah said, Woe is me. Woe is me. Because he saw God, the holy God, in all of his blazing glory. And he knew in an instant who he was. For you to truly know who you are, you have to know who God is. Who your creator is. Woe is me. He went into the temple burdened about the, the, the contemporary events of his day, burdened about the throne and burdened about the future of his nation. He, he went in concerned, filled with all of these concerns about economic security and, and material prosperity and, and will our nation continue to, to flourish or will we go back to idolatry, concerned with all of these things. But when he beheld the Lord of glory... All of those concerns are obliterated in an instant because he realizes he has a much greater burden on his back. It is the burden of sin. He he realizes that he stands face to face with the judge of all eternity and on the scales of God's justice he has found himself wanting and he realizes that no good efforts, no good deeds, no amount of cleaning myself up is ever going to make a dent in the eyes of him whose, fire, whose eyes are like blazing fire. And so he cries out, woe is me. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell amongst the sinful people for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He went in under the burden of contemporary events. All of a sudden, that wasn't his pressing concern anymore. He realized that he was on the opposite side of the undefeated king. And so he cries out to the Lord, In repentance, woe is me, I am unclean, I am undone. I am a sinful man in the midst of a sinful people. And what is it that happens? In verse 6, the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from the altar, that there was a, a sacrifice that had been made. He had seen a sacrifice that had been made on his behalf. And that that seraphim, that angel, came and took a coal from the altar and and applied that sacrifice to Isaiah's account, touching him on the lips, cleansing him of his sin. The seraphim said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Listen, sin must be atoned for. No matter how hard we try, we cannot clean ourselves up. There's no amount of good deeds and good works that we can do to pay our sin debt. There's no moral ladder that we can climb up to God. There's nothing we can do. The the depth that we have fallen into is too deep. Our situation is so hopeless. The Bible describes us in our sinful state as dead. We must be acted upon by the Holy God. The good news is that even though there's no ladder that we can climb, the good news is that God has come down to us. That, That this God who was seated on a throne, high and lifted up, that he saw the Lord. In John chapter 12, it tells us, John writes and he says that Isaiah saw Jesus On that throne that it was Jesus the the one enthroned in heaven above who left this place of glory in heaven his exalted transcendence and he left it and became a man He, he did not grasp onto his position of of exalted worship but he humbled himself to be born as a man he humbled himself to die. He humbled himself not to just die any death, but to die the death of the cross. And he went to the cross. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. That sin demands justice. And Jesus who never sinned, Jesus who perfectly fulfilled God's law. Jesus was the one who was being declared about, holy, holy, holy. He left that to go to the cross so that on the cross, God could place our sin on him. The Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. That on the cross, the the sin of the world was placed upon Christ. The cross wasn't wasn't just an accident. The cross was actually the preordained plan of God from all eternity. The cross was necessary. Sin had to be paid for. And all who put their faith in Christ, the Bible says, will be clothed in his righteousness. All who will cry out like Isaiah, Woe is me, I am undone. And who will trust not in their own works, but in the sacrifice, in the altar, will have Christ's work applied to your account. Your sin placed on him, his righteousness placed on you, so that you will be a new creation in Christ. So that you will be fundamentally transformed from the inside out. That the Holy Spirit of God will come and dwell on the inside of you. Changing the way you think, changing the way you act, changing the things that you want, your desires, your feelings. All being transformed, all being renewed, made new by the Holy Spirit of God. And this salvation that that we can all receive as we repent and look to the cross in faith, he gives away freely as a gift of grace. It's grace. It's all of grace. Unmerited favor. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. We can't work for it. And the salvation that we receive from God, it's all of Christ. It's all of his work. It's all of grace. Jesus didn't leave his throne of glory to be born as a man, to live a life without sin, to die a death on the cross, to bear your burden of sin. He didn't leave all of that just to help you find meaning in life, though he will. He didn't come just to help you fix your low self esteem. In fact, I would argue that your self-esteem is too high, that there are, all of our self-esteem is too high, that we need more of woe is me. He didn't come to help you find fulfillment at work or help you to love yourself. He came to reconcile you to the thrice holy God. Amen. Amen. Isaiah needed to be cleansed. We need to be cleansed. The cross is our only hope, ladies and gentlemen. We we will all one day stand before God like Isaiah. We will all one day stand before him. And we will either be found naked in our own sin and shame or we will be found clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We need the cross applied to our account. And this is why us as believers, this is why us as Christians, with all that we have, we cling to the cross. We hold on to the cross. Because if Christ does not save us, we know that we are totally and hopelessly lost. Christ truly is our only hope before a holy God. When we stand before God on that day, we must declare, He saved me. Jesus saved me. Jesus paid for my sins. What what right do we have to be ushered into the kingdom? We have no right. Jesus saved me. Jesus purchased my salvation on that cross Jesus all of Jesus so we cling to the cross and like Isaiah we must say woe is me woe is me this is why we take of communion every week because it reminds us Of what we are clinging on to. It reminds us what we're holding on to. It it helps us to rid ourselves of any notion of our own goodness, of our own worthiness, of our own righteousness. It reminds us of what Christ did to redeem us. Communion is not just a pre-lunch snack By partaking of communion, we declare Christ is our only hope. His work, his sacrifice, his resurrection is our only hope. This is the gospel that we have rebelled against God, but that God has loved us and sent his only son to die so that we might live. And so we cling to the work of Christ every day, every day. We never move beyond needing the cleansing work of the gospel. We never move beyond needing that cleansing work applied to our lives. So this is why every week before we take communion, we invite you to examine yourself, to to, to let the Holy Spirit examine your heart, to... To say, is there any area of my life that I need to repent of this morning? That I need to make right before God? Before we come to the altar and and receive the bread and receive the juice that represent the broken body and the shed blood. Truly, friends, there is no other hope of redemption. There's no other hope of salvation. There's no other hope of being made right with God but the work of Christ. He is our only hope in life and in death. And so we cling to him with everything that we have.